Our passage today comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard, so that you are not led away by the air of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we gather today to lift our praises to you. We celebrate with those that we welcomed into our family. You are worthy of praise, and we are grateful that we are able to know your love and gather together. We pray that you continue to sustain your church and guide us to reach our community and world. You are our steadfast rock and source of peace. We pray that as we face many uncertainties in our lives, that we remain hopeful, knowing that you are in control. Lord, please be with Pastor Jeff today as we turn our attention to hearing your word and growing in our knowledge of you. Thank you for all that you do. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Teresa. Oh, fun time celebrating. All you baptizees, I just want to say congratulations. Uh, let's just give him a hand. One more hand. <laughs> Praise God. And thank you, parents, for leading your kids to the Lord. Thank you for doing that. Um, I, I, I think we're going to talk about this next week, but I think the greatest evangelism program we have in the church is a radiant church reflecting the glory of God in worship going out into the world and also parents evangelizing their own children. Greatest opportunities for evangelism we have. Um, we're going to begin our message today. I just want to start with a story. Uh, you know, I grew up in what I would call the you can look but don't touch church. And what I mean by that is that I could always look at Christian doctrine. Like I could look at the Bible I could read the stories. I could study in Sunday school and memorize the Bible verses and go to church. And I always got to hear stories and read stories about the sacred flame, but I never got to touch it. And so uh, I just kind of grew up in this church where God was kind of a high doctrine. Worship was distant, passionless, hymnotic. And outsiders, particularly if they used salty language, chewed, smoked, drank, and feuded with their neighbors, which was a perfect description of my dad, (laughs) seemed not to be welcome. And you would never hear that in so many terms. Like no one would come up to him or or, uh, me and say, hey, you're not welcome here, but you could feel it. Like you could feel it like an electricity vibe coming across the room at you, especially between the Sunday school hour and between church hour like the church service hour, because there was a little break in there, and my dad would go out. He was a sinner, of course. He didn't know the Lord, and he would go out on the steps of, of the church, the front steps, and just light up. And you could see the, people, the looks in their faces as they walked by him of just disappointment and derision. And you could see it. And that church also tended to chase off good pastors and preach the gospel, uh, that preached the gospel and attracted bad pastors who slept around. And I often wondered, as I watched all of those things going on, why are people not welcomed here? Why are people not welcomed here? 
And when I talk about having an inward vision, which is what we're going to talk about today. Last week, we talked about an upward mission. Our upward mission is to be worshipers, vertical relationship, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And this week, we're talking about our inward vision. What is our inward vision? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being ingrown or about becoming a group of inwardly focused people who just come to consume a Sunday morning product or whose relationships have become ingrown to the exclusion of visitors. The message that ingrown Christianity sends us is, we've already got our peer group, so good luck finding yours. We've got our group of friends. We have our box and our little bubble. Hope everything works out for you. Now that for sure is not the inward vision or the inward mission that God has called us to. So I want to give you our mission statement again. Put it up on the screen. Our mission, our upward mission, mission is to make disciples of Jesus who gather to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's our number one priority. And the inward is this. Those disciples who grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our outward vision is to go into all the world proclaiming the gospel of Christ. So when you're gathered here for worship, we want to grow you deep in the Lord. We want to grow your roots and your foundation and lay your foundation in the gospel and in the word. And today we're going to focus on that second plank of that calling. And we're going to look at this passage in 2 Peter 3, 17 through 18. It says, therefore, I'll read it again. Dear friends, dear friends. They're dear. Uh, Since you uh, know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. So I want to take a few minutes and unpack what's going on in this chapter. And the first thing that we see that is going on in this chapter leading up to verse 18 is that we are to guard ourselves against any error or any ideology that would lead us into spiritual uncertainty and instability. I want to talk about that. Because now in chapter 3, here's what chapter 3 is about. Chapter 3, he says, I'm reminding you of what I wrote you in my first letter. What did he write them? First Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Chapter 3 is about that. Chapter 3 is about the day of the Lord. Chapter 3 is about this is it. <laughs> the end is here. And here's what is going to be happening in these last days. Uncertainty about the future, which is a cause of anxiety and instability today. Our inability to live with life's unknowns can fuel our worry and anxiety. And so he's going to talk to us about being stable, having a Christian biblical worldview to stabilize your life in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of chaos. Verse 4, look, look back at verse 4. He says, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, mocking and, and following their own evil desires, saying, uh, where, where is this coming we've heard about? Where is it that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. Why would it be so important to bring up this in the context of spiritual growth? What is the doubt and the uncertainty that these mockers and these scoffers are enticing the church and drawing them into? What is it? It is to focus on anything but our worldview. And our worldview is an end times worldview. It is about the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Titus 2.13. That's how we see the world. Look at verse 8. He says, dear friends, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. 
So here we see clearly God does not experience the passage of time the way you and I do. For us, it's been 2,000 years, and these scoffers and these mockers are like, where is he at? Where is he? How come he hasn't returned yet? And so they, they get you to focus on anything else other than his return by scoffing and mocking. But what does he say? He said, well, the Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So God doesn't experience the passage of time the way you and I do. For you and I, it's been 2,000 years, and we're wondering, where is he? For God, it's been a couple of days. It's just been a couple of days. And he's allowed this to go on. He's allowed the world to go on in its direction, the way it is right now, because he is patient with you. Now, when he uses the word you, he's talking about them in solidarity with the human race. He's saying all of you, everyone, so that people will come to repentance. God has given us more time to win more so that more people can come to faith through baptism and more people can be taught the word of God. So God is patient, and this is what he's doing. So we have to have a heavenly perspective. We have to try to think of this from God's perspective, but we also have to have a historical perspective. Look at verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be burned up. Seems pretty final. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. As you wait for the day of of God and hasten its coming, but based on his promise, we wait, what? For new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. New heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So we need a historical perspective too. We need a heavenly perspective from God's perspective. It's been a couple of days now. He's working on it. He's given us time. He's trying to bring as many people into the faith as he possibly can through repentance. But we also need a historical perspective. Where are we in human history? We're in the last days. How long have we been? 2,000 years Because on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh, what Peter says is this, what you see is that, which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Do you think on Tuesday, for some, that it's going to feel like the end of the world? I guarantee you. No matter what side you're on, it's going to feel like the end of the world. Why is that? Because it is. It is the end of the world. You and I are watching the world pass away. That's what the scripture says. We are watching this world is passing away. And that's hard to do. It's hard to watch someone you love pass away. That's difficult. But this world is passing. And what we're waiting for is the glorious return of our great God and our Savior, Jesus the Messiah. Verse 17, he says, therefore, therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard. Take a defensive stance. Be ready so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. The Christian is supposed to be the one person in the office who is stable. The church is supposed to be the one institution in our world that is stable and doesn't move with the shifting sand of cultures. So don't be destabilized. 
Be clear about your worldview. The Christian worldview is an end times worldview. Our spirituality is located in our eschatology. Eschatology is a branch of Christian theology that studies the last times. And now the sciences, various disciplines in the physical sciences, in the hard sciences, are developing also uh, branches of study on eschatology. Secularists and naturalists are trying to figure out how the world might end. And their story is super depressing. Because it's just heat death in the universe. And our story ends that way too, according to Peter. But then it restarts. See, the gospel is about how God started the world, how God saved the world and everyone in it, and how God is going to end the world and start it again in the new heavens and the new earth. Your and my spiritual growth happens in the context of that story. That's our story. That's our biblical worldview. So Peter says, don't let any mockers or false teachers or unstable people or untaught people, don't let them drag your hope away into some other just ruminating and get wrapped around the wheels and out in the sticker weeds of some other ideology because the cost is your stability and God has called us to be a stable force in this culture toward the gospel. Number two, he says, so in light of that, grow in grace. Grow in grace. What is grace? It's the art of becoming like Jesus. Grace is the art of becoming like the master. After Peter grounds us in our worldview, which provides stability for the believer, he tells us, but grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. Paul tells us, receive grace. Peter tells us, grow in it. Grow in it. How do we grow in grace? First, what is grace? I love this quote by John Stott. He said, grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Grace is a love that takes the initiative to condescend and stoop and rescue Because God cares. Grace is God's gift of salvation at his own expense. Grace is God's gift at his own expense. And so lavish and so extravagant, the gift that it doesn't expect repayment, can't be repaid, but it does demand repentance. It does demand a a turning of the life to Jesus. And how do we grow in the grace of our Savior and Lord? We just read about Jesus, read it, And then emulate Jesus. Do what Jesus would do. Think the way Jesus would think. Respond the way Jesus would respond. We practice mercy. And we practice, we become practitioners of compassion. Jesus illustrates God's heart for outsiders in his enduring portrait of God as father who patiently waits for his rebellious son to return. But instead of giving us a systematic theology on grace, he tells us this beautiful, amazing story. And this is the most captivating, probably one of the most captivating lines to begin any story is, there was a man who had two sons. There was a man who had two sons. That's Luke 15. And in the story, a young man demands his share of the inheritance and storms off in a huff, blazing his own trail. Once the rebellious son makes it to the big pagan city, he blows through his portion of the estate in fast and wild living. His foolishness then leads him to poverty, and he finds himself taking a temp job for a swine farmer. And the scripture says that he sat there and his belly, he got so poor and he was so impoverished and his belly, he was so hungry that he longed to stuff himself with the uh, foodstuffs of the pigs. Like he was going to, he was about to try some pig's gruel. And that of course would make him religiously unclean. 
So the picture is that he has become, for a Jew, as religiously unclean as a person could be. And in addition to this offensive vocation, Jesus characterizes the youth as contemptuous of authority. He's contemptuous of authority. Theirs was a high honor culture. It was a high honor elder culture. So when you see your elders, you show them deference. Honor thy father and mother. Right? Don't marginalize them. Don't worship youth. Honor your father and your mother. And so when your elder comes in the room, you are to show them deference and to show them honor. This is the world that they lived in. So for the son to come to the father and demand his share of the inheritance while the father was still living, like give me the inheritance while you're alive, was very offensive. In addition to that, he's the second born. He's not the first born, which means he doesn't have an inheritance. Everything comes through the first born. So he's got to wait till his father dies. Then the firstborn receives it. And then he decides how to apportion it. But this young, arrogant, brash young man has decided to dishonor his father this way. And this is, in this culture, this is an open hand slapped to the mouth of the father's honor. And so he's sitting there and he really, he comes to an epiphany. The flashpoint of his change is when he realizes even the hired hands, even the servants in my father's house do not, are not living as bad as I am living. I will go back and I will ask my father if I could just be a slave in his home. They live better than me. So he returns. And he returns home to a surprising reception. The father runs out to greet him orders his servants to clothe him in a robe, a fine robe, and then put the family signet ring back on his finger, which means you're back into the family. And it is just this beautiful picture of repentance and forgiveness and grace. And the father grabs him and wraps him up in his arms and says, my son, he was lost and now he's back. And if God has forgiven our sins, who is it that holds our sins against us? And if God has forgiven those who have wronged me, on what basis, what grounds would I still hold that person blameworthy against me? You see, grace is the art of becoming like Jesus. And Jesus shows us the heart of the Father. He shows us the example. He models the grace. He models the compassion and the forgiveness That he wants us to live out. So when we grow in the grace of Jesus. We become more like Jesus. Our lives look like that. Our lives look like mercy. It looks like compassion. It looks like forgiveness. We are quick to reconcile. And to keep short accounts with others. Number three. We grow in our knowledge. Which is the art of knowing Jesus. The art of knowing Jesus. Notice what he says here. He says but grow in the grace. And the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And why is this important? Why is it important to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? This is an echo of 2 Peter 1, 5, where he says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge. Add to your faith goodness and add to your goodness knowledge. The word he uses here for knowledge is the word gnosis or gnosis, which means comprehension or intellectual grasp of a thing. It means comprehension or an intellectual grasp of something. And this is the kind of knowledge that has to do with content mastery. This is the kind of knowledge that has to do with growing in your knowledge, knowing what you're talking about, and becoming proficient in it, right? 
Now, what about the objection? So this is the kind of knowledge that you and I, as disciples, we need as we're growing in Christ as new disciples. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says this. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So you have those two aspects of making disciples. You and I baptize new converts into the faith. The Holy Spirit baptizes them into the body of Christ. And then we teach them to observe, to obey all that Christ has taught and commanded. So we follow Jesus's example. We follow Jesus's teachings. But what about the objection that knowledge growth can be detrimental? Knowledge growth can be detrimental. 1 Corinthians 8, 8. Doesn't Paul say knowledge puffs up but love builds up? And I would answer this in a couple of ways. First of all, the kind of knowledge that he's referring to there in context is the kind of knowledge that the Corinthians were practicing as what's called esoteric knowledge. And esoteric knowledge is when you believe that only the most elite spiritual people in the cult have access to the revelation. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is, no, this revelation about the cross has been poured out on all. It's available to all. This is an available revelation. So the knowledge that he's talking about here is esoteric knowledge. He says knowledge will pass away. Yes, it will. But most of the uses of knowledge are in a positive light, and they far outweigh cautionary passages. Let me just give you a few. God himself is a knowing being. God himself is a knowing being. God is a being of knowledge. Romans eleven thirty three 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How searchable, unsearchable his judgments. How untraceable his ways. God knows everything. God is a knowing being. And Ephesians 5 tells us we are to be imitators of God. We're to grow in our knowledge. And Jesus is the key to the knowledge of God. Luke uh, 11.52 says, Woe to you legal experts. He says, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. What's the key to knowledge? Jesus. Growing in our knowledge of Christ. And then the local church has the capacity for mutual instruction. Romans 15.14. He says, my brothers and sisters, I myself... I'm convinced about you that you are also full of goodness, filled with all the knowledge and able to instruct one another. So the goal of the pastor is for the people in the congregation to instruct one another. And we do this as we grow in our knowledge of the contents of our faith. So Paul's desire is for the local church to instruct each other. And then we have the sacrificial love of the cross, which surpasses our need for knowledge. Look at this, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. It says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He says, and I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love, firmly grounded in the love of God, knowledge of his love, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of that love, that you may know the full dimensionality, that you may see the full scope of God's love for you, and to know Christ's love. To know it because why? Because it surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is he saying here? In other words, knowing God, the most important thing is knowing God, not just knowing about God is knowing him, not just knowing about him. Now, the word surpasses the Greek term hyperbolo, which is where we get the term hyperbole. And hyperbole just means exaggeration. It means to overstate. 
And hyperbalo really comes from two words, balo meaning to throw or to like throwing a shot put. And huper meaning to supersede or to go beyond. So there's the idea, the word picture of a discus thrower or a shot put thrower throwing that thing and it hits the mark and then love steps up and throws it way beyond that mark. And so you and I are supposed to grow in our knowledge, but we're also supposed to exceed that by growing in our love for Christ and the fullness of the Spirit. And so we are called to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, to reflect Jesus' gracious, merciful heart, his forgiving heart for others, and called to grow in the depth of our knowledge, the content of our faith. Why is that so important? Let me put some statistics up on the screen. I want you to see this. I want you to see just how things are going in the evangelical church today. Here's how respondents answered yes to the following statements in a joint survey between Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not a matter of objective truth. 54% of evangelicals agreed with that. 54% of evangelicals said, yeah, I agree with that. Or the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not factually true. 48%, nearly 50% of people who say, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, agreed that the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not factually true. What about this statement? The Holy Spirit is a force, an energy field, but is not a real person. Holy moly. 46% of people who say they're evangelicals Believe this statement. The Holy Spirit is a force, but not a real person. Or God accepts worship from all religions. That includes Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam. God accepts worship from all religions. 42% of evangelicals agreed. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Almost a third of Christians say they agree with that statement. A third of respondents said they believe that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of God which is the ancient Arian heresy. Jesus was merely a great teacher. Again, 30% say he was only a good teacher. Gender identity is a matter of choice. Almost a quarter of Christians say they believe that. And God counts a person righteous by works, not by faith alone in Christ. I was actually heartened to see that was only 12%. I would have been heartbroken if that was 50. But still, 12% is way too high. You read Ephesians, right? Why bring all this up? Here's why, folks, because in the evangelical church, we have got a lot of work to do. You and I need three, three solid grounding competencies. We need to have a love competency. We need to have a grace competency. Like, we need to look like Jesus. We need to follow Jesus' pattern that he modeled for us in compassion and forgiveness and grace. But we also need to have biblical competency. And we need theological literacy. We need those three competencies in order to remain stable as the shifting sands beneath us in the world as they change. So here's our vision. I'll lay it on you. A few specifics. Now, all of this, of course, is Lord willing and the COVID don't rise, but here, here we go. The first one is training. In our discipleship ministries, here's what we want to do. We want to train you with the skill set you need to live the Christian life. So my goal is for 60 to 80%, but really it's 100%. My goal is 100%, but 60 to 80 is realistic. 
uh, completion of a spiritual growth core track, which includes courses like Foundations of Christian Theology. I'm teaching that on Wednesday nights. That is a really fun class. There's about 15 or 20 of us that get together and uh, study theology, and it's just a great course to ground you in your, in your faith. And also Foundations of the Christian Life, which I believe is starting soon to help you with Christian disciplines. Or spiritual gifts assessment. Do you know what spiritual gifts God has, has given you? The Holy Spirit has given you. We want you to take that gift assessment. Or first principles of the gospel. First principles of the gospel. Man, if you're a new believer or you just feel like you don't have a good grasp or a handle, a handle on the gospel, Patrick leads that course. And you should jump in there when it comes up again. Or first principles of, of uh, evangelism and outreach, which will be starting this next year. And then also leadership training. We want to start a school of leadership, which includes a Bible theology and ministry seminar, a core track for that, and also a practicum. And this is training and certification for high-capacity leaders, including deacons, elders, future missionaries, and prospective staffers. So this is for real. I don't ever, ever want to have to send a missionary in training away from Christ Community Church so they can go to South Dakota or somewhere and get some training. I want them to be able to get it right here. And there's no reason why they can't. And so we want everyone to have the training that they need, both in grace, biblical, and theological competencies. And also community. So there's training, and then there's also community. Our original goal was about 25 small groups for our church. Well, Pastor, we hired Pastor Patrick, and he's a bit of a go-getter, so we, we sort of way blew past that. And uh, so the new goal, I believe, is 40 to 60 small groups. Really, I want everyone in a small group. And I realize COVID has made it very difficult for us to gather and meet and do all that. But going forward, like moving forward, I want to see people in community around the Word of God. Because your growth, you will accelerate. That is the accelerant for spiritual growth. Being in community, across the table from another believer, around the Word. Centered around the Word. And so we have uh, lots of things that you can plug into, elective courses that are available throughout the week and, and uh, small groups. And then thirdly, marriage coaching. So the strength of any church, the strength of any church is, is its families. The strength of any church is the, is the family. And the strength of the family is the marriage. And so we want to strengthen marriages. So for those who are struggling, who've lost hope, the worried well, Marriage coaching gives you the skills to resolve conflicts and gives you a hopeful vision of a God-honoring and healthy marriage. It is so critical for a healthy church to have healthy families. So vital. And if you're struggling with that, you can contact us today and we will try to get you, uh, get you in a relationship with one of our coaches. Why, why bring up all this? Here's why. Folks, the end of all things is near. <laughs> I mean, it's the end of the world as we know it. It is. I mean, you and I have a worldview that sees the world as coming to an end. And God is going to restart it again in the new heavens and new earth. And in the meantime, we are to grow in the gracious, compassionate, forgiving, loving uh, model of Jesus. And we are, to, we are to master this body of knowledge. We are to learn the scriptures and become theologically competent so that we're not unstable and we don't shift when the rest of the world is falling apart. Let me pray with you. God, we just thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you for these people, for all of them. I thank you for our elders and deacons and volunteer leaders and all of our volunteers and people who just 
they are responsible for making this church run. Thank you, God, for equipping them with their spiritual gifts to lead. And God, I want to thank you for this congregation who shows up every week or sits there in front of their TV every week live streaming the service because their heart is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And Father, we want to be a church that is growing inwardly, a church that is strong and healthy internally. And as we become stronger internally, God, would you make us stronger for the world? Would you make us stronger for the people who don't know you yet? And we thank you for that in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. All right, why don't you stand? We're going to close our time and seal the deal with the final prayer and a song.